Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Corona cover-up, the U.S. president chalks tariffs as U.S. criticism of Beijing intensifies. Taking flight, Warren Buffett reveals Berkshire Hathaway has sold its U.S. airline stocks and an eye in the sky. The drone's capable of detecting a fever from way up above. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers from around the globe. I hope you had a restful weekend and hopefully some safe sunshine too. We begin the week with more promising medical news in the fight against COVID-19. Let me walk you through it. The U.S. government is set to begin distributing Gilead coronavirus treatment remdesivir to hospitals this week. U.S. regulators have also fast-tracked tracked the, US, uh, the use of Roche's new antibody test. We've got the CEO coming up later on in the show with all the details. Meanwhile, there are now more than 100 potential vaccines in development worldwide. That, according to the World Health Organization. Innovation in times of crisis remains a big positive, and we will hang on to that as best we can. To the markets now, where U.S. futures are in the red. That follows Friday's pullback, too. It's trade-related pandemic punishment on China remains the theme. We've got more details and analysis coming up. But I have to say it's a global story and the bad economic data continues to add up. South Korea's factory activity plummeting. Hong Kong's economy, meanwhile, was down almost 9 percent year on year in the first quarter. It was a relief, perhaps, I think, that the Japanese and Chinese markets were closed on Monday. So no further data from those nations. The other critical thing to watch this week, we've got almost half of S&P 500 firms reporting results. So far, earnings are down 16 percent year over year and more than 85 big cap names have withdrawn guidance. We're operating in a snow blizzard, as I've described before. Warren Buffett was asked this weekend for his guidance on when he'll put some of his $137 billion of cash to work. He said he doesn't see anything attractive to invest in and he remains cautious. Hmm. Let's get to the drivers. The U.S. president has once again blasted China for its handling of the pandemic, this time accusing it of a cover-up. Personally, I think they made a horrible mistake and they didn't want to admit it. We wanted to go in. They didn't want us there. Even World Health wanted to go in. They were admitted, but much later, you know, not immediately. And my opinion is they made a mistake. They tried to cover it. President Trump added that tariffs could be the ultimate punishment, quote, against China. On Sunday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said there was, quote, enormous evidence that the virus originated from a Wuhan laboratory. Christine Romans joins me on all this. Christine, the rhetoric, I think, flying back and forth, the Chinese overnight calling Mike Pompeo evil as well, and that happened in the last hour or so. Um, the fear here, I think, is that we add an acceleration or an activation of the trade war once again on top of a war against a pandemic. 
the trade risks are back, and this is not what uh, companies and investors had wanted to see. The president, you know, he has called himself tariff man. He has never admitted that tariffs are paid for by U.S. companies and can be passed on to U.S. consumers. And what a terrible time to try to raise prices here, just as many of these companies are trying to restore their global supply chains, right, so that they can get back up and running. So this trade relationship, this relationship between the U.S. and China at a very perilous state here. I mean, you saw this happening last week when the Chinese uh, issued via Xinhua, the, the official state news agency, this elaborate video of Lego minifigurines and, and making the United States look, um, you know, like behind the ball and, and refusing to, like children, essentially, and China looking like the good guy. Now the U.S. is firing back with these kind of accusations that China on purpose misled the United States. It's just, it's just going in, in a direction, certainly, that is uh, rattling Wall Street. Yeah, and it's also not just about the White House and not just about the Republicans. The Democrats clearly voicing concerns about what yeah. China did here. Then the world actually asking lots of questions. Yep. So um, it's certainly not going to be a theme that goes away. In the interim, there's seemingly mixed messages about further stimulus here in the United States, or at least the timing of further stimulus. We seem to be on pause, and I quote... On pause, Larry Kudlow said when he talked to R.J. Tapper yesterday, you know, he said that the Paycheck Protection Program, that small business loan program, had been doing very well and was popular and very efficient. And he said he suggested that maybe that could be renewed or more money could go there. But overall, when Jake asked him about, you know, aid for states and a fourth big tranche of, of stimulus, uh, he said we were on pause here. And I think that caught some people by surprise when you're starting to see people in the administration slow walk another fourth round of aid. Um, because when I talk to economists, and I'm sure that you've heard this too, that when they're pricing in sort of their expectations for recovery, whether it's V, uh, unlikely U or W or what have you for the recovery and the timing, they're assuming there's more stimulus than this. This was just the survival mode. And now they're expecting some transformational investments to help business, you know, change the way that they do business. So I, I was surprised to see the pause button hit on aid here. Yeah, it's got to be more targeted. If we are going to see states opening up, that's arguably the best form of stimulus. If businesses can do it and they can rehire workers, what more support comes after this if we hold the states separate needs to be targeted to support rehiring and to help people begin right. to spend again? And, you know, Republicans want some immunity for businesses. That's part mm. of it, too. They want to make sure that there are protections for businesses. There's no playbook for this, right? So if a, if a business opens up and follows the government guidelines and one of their employees or a customer gets sick, how do you know that they're not going to, to be liable there? So that's also important. And, and I think that the state aid... You know, at some point here, I mean, every single transaction that has not happened, every single paycheck that has stopped is money that goes into those state coffers to pay firefighters, teachers, law enforcement, streets and sanitation. At some point, you're going to hit a critical moment there, too. So I think Washington, I think the politics is what we're talking about here. But I think more stimulus is coming. Yes, I would agree with you. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. All right. Nice to see you. Someone else giving their view on the U.S. economy. The Oracle of Omaha says that the economy will recover, but he's less convinced about the airline industry. Warren Buffett revealing that Berkshire Hathaway has sold its stake in the four biggest U.S. carriers. Paula Monica joins us on this, Paul. There was so much from Warren Buffett that you and I could keep this going for another hour. But let's talk specifically about the airlines and then we'll hone in on some of the other things he said. 
he's got previous yeah, with airlines it, and it hurt last time too. Please. Exactly. It was really surprising, Julia, to hear that Buffett, who had been very bullish up until just a few months ago on the entire airline sector, admitting that he made a mistake and that the world has changed because of COVID-19 and he does not see air travel returning to normal levels anytime soon. And that is the reason why Berkshire Hathaway no longer owns any position in Southwest, Delta, United and American. They are completely out of this business. And it is even more interesting when you consider that, you know, Berkshire Hathaway still is bullish on aviation from the standpoint of owning precision cast parts. The last big acquisition that they made, that's an aerospace components company and, and owns net jets as well. Yeah, I mean, this was just a bolt out of the blue. It's tough to look at your risk portfolio and your investment strategy and say that, you know, look, this is something that the airlines themselves did wrong. It was simply just something that you can't account for, nor the time it takes to recover. What was interesting for me, and I mentioned it at the top of the show, was that he was asked about putting the cash pile, the billions of dollars to work, and he said he didn't see anything. And they haven't even bought any of their own stock since March the 10th, which I thought was interesting in light of what we've seen. Yeah, $137 billion in cash, obviously a formidable war chest for Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. But the thing that struck me, Julia, and you uh, alluded to it as well, unlike 2008, when he was quick to make investments in Goldman Sachs and GE, which he's since dumped, but he was willing to step in at a time of crisis then, he praised Jay Powell and the Fed for doing everything that it has done in the past month to try and prop up the U.S. market and uh, you know, economy. And that seems to be a reason why he's unwilling to make some investments now, because the Fed has already got all of these loan programs in place. And I think because of the recovery in the markets that we've seen over the past few weeks as well, the valuations aren't as attractive to someone like Buffett as they might have been if stocks had continued to plunge from where they were in mid-March. It's such a great point. Lessons learned, or perhaps even that he thinks there will be better entry points going forward. There's significant uh, unfortunate news to come, I think, on uh, the fundamentals and the economy terms. But that contrast, like you agree, He's so critical. Yeah. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, now to efforts in uh, reopening Europe. Italy is allowing millions of people to return to work. Manufacturing and construction activities restart today. And in Spain, a limited number of businesses are reopening after the daily death toll fell to a six-week low. In Greece, meanwhile, the government's swift lockdown measures save lives. Now authorities are allowing phased reopening of businesses, including bookshops and hair salons, the message, too, is that Greece will be ready for the summer holiday season. CNN's Nick Robertson spoke to the Greek Prime Minister, and Nick joins us live now from Athens. Nick, great to have you with us. What more did the Prime Minister have to say about their hopes going forward? You know, a, a lot more. And I think one of the big takeaways mm -hmm. when you sit down with this new Prime Minister, Greece new from last year, he's not a populist like the last Prime Minister. He's a pragmatist. And that's what he points to his success and the country's success in handling uh, COVID-19 so far, that they locked down early before uh, there were any deaths in the country. So far, they've only had 145 deaths 
and 2,600 approximately infections. That's over the whole period. Uh, compare that to some countries who are doing more than that in a day. So that is significant. I've been to a hospital here, uh, the COVID wards. There are still people in intensive care, but the vast majority of beds in intensive care are empty. The, the doctor in charge at the main COVID hospital here in Athens, I talked to her. She said, no doctors, no nurses, have been infected and we take it almost as a part of the new normal around the world that if you're in the medical frontline profession you're going to get sick from this virus there's a good chance of it it didn't happen here in greece why because the prime minister put an early lockdown a strong lockdown in place and there was enough ppe for the you know the healthcare professionals but that big positive success, yes, the Prime Minister feels that he got it right so far, but the next phase, opening up for business, that's a tough one. This is what we talked about. Greece's economy is dependent, heavily dependent on tourism, 20% or more mm. dependent on tourism. So opening up means letting in tourists. Mm, not, not, at, not at the first stage. We are not more dependent than, say, Portugal or even to a certain extent, uh, extent Spain. We are, all southern countries are heavily dependent uh, on, uh, on tourism. Now the real question is, will we be able to have tourists come Can you? in the later parts of the summer? Only if we agree to very specific protocols, um, well, hopefully at the European level. Let's assume people you know, get a test before they, uh, before they fly out, and then we carefully uh, monitor them, either an antibody test or a PCR test. Uh, and then, of course, the, the tourism experience this summer may be slightly different. Um, uh, from what, you, what you've um, uh, had in, in previous years with more social distancing, maybe no, you know, no, no bars may be open or no tight crowds, but you can still get a fantastic experience in Greece, provided the, the global epidemic is on a downward path. But uh, best case scenario is Greece is, um, is, is open for business July 1st, uh, and we're working towards that. So we're preparing uh, towards, uh, uh, towards that. But of course, it involves airlines because most people fly uh, into Greece and very, you know, very, very strict, but also enforceable protocols. Can you put a figure on how big you think the economic loss might be, even in percentage terms? I've resisted because uh, it's going to be very different. Uh, rather, I don't want to give you a big range, but it's going to be much worse if we don't open up at all for the summer. You have to. Uh, um, uh, if we manage to, to get some tourists, it's going to be, uh, it, it's going to be uh, better. But, you know, all, uh, it's around 10% seems to be a consensus uh, amongst most uh, uh, European countries uh, uh, as what, what, what could happen, which is a massive contraction. It's going to be a very different summer, isn't it? It is going to be a very uh, a different summer, but uh, um, we... We hope that the worst is, uh, uh, is behind us. And again, what I, what I keep as a legacy of this, of this crisis is this sense of uh, collective success. And I, I dare to use the word pride. Greeks haven't been proud in a long, long uh, time. You know, for 10 years, we were the punching bag of Europe. Um, Does this uh, change the situation? I think it has changed in terms of our, in terms of our, in terms of our self-confidence and also confidence in the state. I'm not saying confidence in the government necessarily, but people trust the state. They trust the experts. The first thing I, I, I did was to give the floor to our, um, uh, our top you know, epidemiologist. And he's doing the daily briefings. It's not me. This seems to be, dare I say, a very strong message for 
the United States and the United Kingdom, whose track records at the moment on this pandemic are, are, are probably some of the worst in terms of death and infection rates? Well, everyone is doing it their own way. Uh, this is the way. I know, but is there a right way? And, and does Greece have the right way? Well, I think there is. I don't think there is a single right way, but I think we clearly did it, at least in terms of the first phase. Uh, and until now, I think we've done it the right way. You know, what is very clear out of that, Julia, and, and he says it in the interview, that, you know, for there to be economic success in Greece, particularly from tourism, uh, and for the rest of Europe and the rest of the world, you've got to have new international agreements for the new norms. And to your pre the point on your previous interview there, that's international air travel. People getting tested before they leave home, before they arrive here in Greece, which is what we went through at the airport, a COVID test, uh, just to get into the country. A lot of things, fundamental things, really have to change and have to be agreed soon, Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, decisive leadership in the beginning, but then coordinated leadership now needed more than ever. Nick Robertson, great job there. Thank you so much for joining us there from Athens. Great interview. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, antibody testing seen as a crucial part of reopening and the new normal. Drugmaker Roche has come up with one. Their CEO is next with all the details. Plus, Nigeria's response to the COVID-19 crisis and the oil sector there's fight for survival. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. A quick look at U.S. futures at this moment. We are losing ground at pre-market after and adding to the 2.5% losses that we saw in Friday's session two. Trade concerns key here. Tough commentary from President Trump this weekend talking once again about potential tariffs on Chinese incoming goods. That's certainly a key focus for investors this morning. In the meantime, efforts to reopen. Swiss drug maker Roche has won fast-track approval from U.S. regulators for its COVID-19 antibody test. The test determines with a 99.8 percent certainty whether an individual has been infected by the virus. It's this degree of accuracy that is setting the test apart from other rivals. And joining us now is Severin Schwann. He's the CEO of Roche. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. And thank you to, uh, I know, what's been incredible and intense work from your team to get to this point. Talk me through your antibody test and why it's so different. It's really special because it is so accurate. It's, it's almost near perfect accuracy with a sensitivity of 100%, a specificity of 99.8%. So this is pretty extraordinary. And what that allows us is to really uh, reliably test uh, whether uh, a person has been infected by the coronavirus or not, irrespective of whether you had symptoms or not. And it's, to be clear, it's taken from a blood draw. This is not a pinprick test. And I know you're very, let's say, cautious about the pinprick test because of that fact that they're simply not as accurate as the test you're providing here. This is absolutely correct. Uh, you mm -hmm. would go to your doctor um, and the doctor and nurse would take blood and uh, then the test is uh, sent to a lab where it is analyzed um, and only this kind of test uh, can provide this high level of accuracy. Talk to me about your ability to produce these and scale up. You've suggested 100 million tests per month by the end of 2020. That's a big deal. 
Indeed, and um, you know, it's also due to the technology. Uh, unlike molecular tests, where you directly test the virus, with antibody tests, where you uh, actually measure whether the human body has reacted uh, to the virus, you measure the antibodies. For that technology, it's much easier to scale up. So we will provide tests in the high double-digit millions already this month, and we will further ramp up uh, over the remainder of the year. So um, this test can really be used uh, broadly, um, um, unlike molecular tests where you still have a more focused range of testing. I think there are two big questions for people, and I know they'll be asking these questions as they're watching this interview. One, how much immunity is enough to provide resistance against catching COVID-19 or coronavirus once again? And then I think the other thing is, and you mentioned it already with being able to test immunity, even if a person hasn't got symptoms, just testing how much immunity is provided, even when you've not been sick or severely sick at all. Are you collecting this data? Uh, first of all, we know that uh, if you have an infection of other coronaviruses, like the other SARS uh, virus, uh, uh, where we do have data and experience from, it is very, very likely that also for this coronavirus, you will acquire immunity after you have gone through an infection, uh, no matter whether you have shown symptoms or whether you did not show symptoms, because what really matters is whether you have antibodies which, which fight the, the virus. So it's very likely. Having said that, however, because we are at the very beginning, uh, we still have to bring a proof for that. So uh, one of the benefits of this new reliable antibody test is also that we can now track people who have been uh, infected and have recovered and see whether they get reinfected um, in, in the future, which will then be the proof of whether we get immune uh, or not. But there are still open questions uh, on how long will this immunity be? Will it be for one year, two years, several years? Um, will it, um, uh, you know, be full immunity or, or is a reinfection just less severe? So there's still a lot we have to learn over the coming months. Likely but not certain in the words of the CEO of Roche here. Does that mean that you would be comfortable or uncomfortable with the idea that your test results are being used in things like immunity passports at this moment? Right. I, I do believe that uh, we are in a world with a lot of ambiguity and mm. we also have to make decisions on incomplete uh, information. So I do think it is valuable information, but we should not fully rely on it. In other words, even if you know that you have been infected, it is important to keep social distance. It is important, uh, uh, you know, to wash your hands, etc. But uh, uh, it, it's... Uh, you know, if you look at it from a public health point of view, of course, the risk of having such people um, exposed again, for example, healthcare workers, uh, is much lower than for a person who has not been uh, infected yet. Uh, so I do think it's it's a very important tool uh, to to track in individuals and 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 make individual decisions. But also, what is very very important, the antibody testing, because we can do that in bigger quantities, will allow us to track the pandemic in a much more precise 
precise way because we will know uh, where we are in the cycle of in the pandemic, how many people mm. have been infected, how infection rates are developing. Yes, and looking for herd immunity as well when we start to see higher percentages of people having got antibodies. Very quickly, I want to talk to you about the arthritis drugs and the use of those potentially to try and fight um, cytokine storms where the body's own immune system starts attacking itself rather than it being about the virus attacking the body. What are your results so far? And just give us a sense of, of trials on this too. Uh, we know from uh, the first more limited clinical trials um, that um, there is increasing evidence that actually this medicine really works for severely ill COVID patients uh, who have pneumonia and where you have, as you have stated, where the immune system has overreacted. Uh, however, I should also say we have uh, big trials, fully randomized trials ongoing, and we will get definite results uh, in uh, June. And we shall watch this space for that. So thank you so much to uh, you and your team for all the hard work and the efforts uh, in this regard. We will continue to track progress. Stay safe, sir. Thank you very much. Severin Schwander, the CEO of Roche. All right, we're counting down to the market open, and that's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday. And as expected, we're beginning the week in the red. U.S.-China trade concerns front and center, as well as, I think, a bit of cautiousness ahead of another busy week of earnings. Investors are also watching the first tentative efforts to reopen the U.S. economy in particular, as other nations around the world do. If governments can manage to do this safely, then it will certainly be a huge positive for sentiment. Macy's is set to reopen some U.S. stores today for the first time since the March lockdown. Almost 70 stores will be up and running this week. But of course, COVID-19 has also claimed its first big retail victim, privately held J. Crew, filing for bankruptcy protection. It will remain in business during its debt restructuring and it hopes to reopen stores to the public soon. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, COVID-19 just accelerating trends that we already saw, a push to e-commerce, the challenge mm -hmm. of bricks and mortar. Interesting that even with J. Crew, they're saying we're still open for business online. Yeah, Julia, they're making the point this is a Chapter 11 filing, not a Chapter 7 liquidation. Right. They hope that they can emerge from this stronger, better prepared for the future. But of course, that future is very uncertain. But as you point out, this is not just a COVID-19 related bankruptcy filing. This company was struggling uh, well before this happened. Accelerating trends is exactly the right phrase uh, to use. It's exposed these companies that, that, that came into this struggling with consumer tastes changing, struggling with the shift to e-commerce. And in particular, in the case of, of J.Crew struggling with debt, they were the result of a leveraged buyout in 2011. That saddled them with a lot of debt, about $1.7 billion uh, as of this year. And this is what uh, really was the nail in the coffin. The bankruptcy uh, will allow them, they say, to deleverage their balance sheet and continue operating. But, but the sad thing about this was that they had started to see the fruit of a, of a, of a many year long 
turnaround plan. Their, their earnings in 2019 were a little better, uh, or perhaps I should say not as bad as their earnings uh, in 2018. They have a stronger brand called Madewell, which they were hoping to spin off uh, an IPO. That is now off the table. Uh, so this is you know, it's sort of a sad turn of events for a, for a brand that, that was made famous, that had a heyday. You'll remember when, when Michelle Obama started wearing their styles. But as I said, it has struggled in recent years. I can't help but feel like it's the first domino among many, Claire. And to your exact point about what type of bankruptcy this is, by the time a company gets to bankruptcy, a lot of the negotiations, the money for the future and the plans for restructuring are already organised. And there's a number of names in this space that are also being touched by rumour, let's say that. Yeah, for sure. Some of the names that are out there, Julian Neiman Marcus, J.C. Mm. Penny, uh, again, uh, companies that were that were struggling with this shift uh, in in consumer behaviour before this. Big department stores that really struggled to sort of define themselves in the age of Amazon to shift to e-commerce, and, and frankly, are also saddled uh, w- with large amounts of debt that they have to service as well as paying for their operations. So that's what, what people are really watching. And there's there's also the market share issue, Julia. You know, I spoke to one analyst recently who said when governors closed down non-essential business, they really handed the likes of Amazon and Walmart and Target another huge slice of market share. And there's no real guarantee that, that when things go back to normal, that that will go back to the likes of JCPenney and Neiman Marcus. I think consumer behavior in some ways will be changed forever through this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We don't know what the new normal looks like yet. Uh, Thank you very much for that, Claire Sebastian. Now, on to another industry facing tough times, the oil sector. The price of Brent crude is down by around 60% so far this year. WTI down nearly 70%. The plunge in prices presenting an additional crisis for all-rich Nigeria. According to the IMF, oil generates 90% of Nigeria's foreign earnings, 60% of government revenue, despite the nation's efforts to try and diversify. Alex Aruna is the Chief Operating Officer at Owando Energy Resources, and he joins us now. Alex, fantastic to have you with us. Challenging times for many reasons for for Nigeria, but I want to hone in on your business first. What does this moment mean and these low oil prices mean for the decisions you have to make as a business? Thanks for having me, Julia. Um, Look, it's interesting times for all of us. Um, As a business, uh, we, we, you know, we, we took a pragmatic approach to hedge our barrels ahead of this. So uh, I will speak to a larger group of independent producers uh, who today at a price of about uh, $25 or $20, uh, potentially 60 to 70% of our production that's public uh, number. So that gives you an idea of where we are from a bottom line perspective. Um, we, we, we've taken the right steps, we believe, uh, encouraged by the government to... Uh, take those few decisions, uh, uh, the, the cuts have come in on the CAPEX side, and of course on the operating expenditure side, we're looking aggressively at, at, at bringing those budgets down. Uh, we all had commitments at the start of the year. Um, the world has changed. Do you have any sense, as you quite rightly point out, the, the world has changed and we don't really have a sense of how long it takes for demand to come back, for the market to rebalance? Is there a risk that financially you're simply not viable for how long it takes to, to, to come back into line for both of those two things to realign? Um, you're, you're, you're right to 
some extent, Julia. I think you would see some casualties along the way. Mm -hmm. um, what we must do is stay optimistic. I, I, I know for most um, all producers currently, uh, there, there are costs that as independents we have very little control of, right? Okay, so if I break down that uh, um, operating cost for you, there's a 20 to 40 percent that sits uh, out of our control. It's from the fees, um, uh, you know, transportation fees, food. We have very little control over that. So, as independents, our uh, human resource, uh, you know, our payroll, uh, you know, uh, operations largely. Um, is where we look to move this from, and of course the capital side. To your point, um, would this be enough? Uh, I think the question is the price of, of oil. We, we're seeing an uptick in the price. Um, we're, we're seeing the decision by OPEC to cut 10 billion barrels uh, come into, you know, sort of realize the intention of, 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 of OPEC in, in taking that huge step. But more important, um, the government is stepping in to ensure that independents like ourselves are, are engaged in conversations to ensure that that process of survival, which is, which is a process for us, um, unknown as well, is managed jointly with the, um, you know, the, the least amount of possible. Yeah, it's such an important point that, um, particularly for private companies here, to like we said, remain viable in the short term and survive to, to the medium term. Alex, I want to talk to you as well because there's clearly two issues here. There's the challenges that are being presented by low oil prices, but also the response to COVID-19. And I know you are part of a, a broader group of people that have raised a lot of money to try and boost medical infrastructure and, and give back to Nigeria. Talk me through that and, and what's been achieved. Um, we, we, we've seen the, the, the most um, impressive, in, in yeah. my time as a professional, um, showing of the private sector uh, stepping forward and, um, and just um, taking on the challenge of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, look, the, the industry at, at large, uh, Russia and, and Saudi Arabia, accelerated potentially what could have been a more manageable situation at this point, but we are where we are. Uh, we've taken we've made the sacrifices and taken the decisions. But what we've seen is um, the likes of the National Oil Company leading, uh, you know, us as partners, uh, putting in about 14 million into, um, uh, the, the, and, and more into that basket. We've seen a, a larger group of banks uh, and, and other institutions come in. And for us, the key is this, the effective spend and distribution of, that, of those funds through the palliative measures we have all set out to to push to the to, you know to the most needy and the most vulnerable because that's really what this is about. Um, yes, COVID will come and we will deal with those issues, but there will be casualties after after we've dealt with the pandemic. And uh, a lasting solution, our company for one has taken a step to create an aggregated platform to combine donors and last mile solutions, so the NGOs and boots on the ground. Um, you know, we, we're, we're encouraging people to come in and and donate so we can disperse this money uh, and, and get it to those that really need it. It's been an amazing showing by the private sector. Um, dare I say uh, they have made it. Yeah, it's been an astonishing response and we'll continue um, to discuss it and to highlight it because I agree with you. Um, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. We will get you back on to, um, to discuss progress and, uh, and response. Alex Iruna there, thank you so much. And I apologize to our viewers for the uh, slight reception issues there as well.
Right, still to come here on First Move. Unprecedented times, unprecedented measures. Drones able to spot someone coughing from afar could soon take to the skies. We'll speak to the CEO of the company that's making them. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Shares of the four biggest U.S. airlines falling sharply, as you can see this, after Warren Buffett said he sold his entire stake. Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway started buying these stocks back four years ago, was once their biggest investors, as you can see, off more than 9% in most cases. The news, though, comes as European carriers continue their own fight for survival. Norwegian has secured the backing of shareholders for its rescue plan, Air France KLM got the EU's approval for an $8 billion bailout. Lufthansa, meanwhile, is having a call with its shareholders on Tuesday. Alfred Pleitgen got exclusive access to a runway at Frankfurt Airport where unused Lufthansa planes are parked. Hi there, Julia. Well, as you can see behind me, there are a lot of parked planes here at the main hub of Europe's largest airline, Lufthansa, in Frankfurt in Germany. And it's really planes of all sizes. You have the A320, A321 aircraft behind me, but you also have everything ranging up to the large A380s as well. And there's almost no place here in Europe where you can see the crisis induced by the coronavirus pandemic more vividly than here at Frankfurt Airport. Lufthansa says right now, they're flying at less than 1% of their usual capacity. They say normally uh, they have about 350,000 passengers every day. Right now, that's down to about 3,000 passengers every day. And of course, we know that airlines, when they don't fly, they literally bleed a lot of money. All these planes still cost a lot of money, even if they're not moving. They still require the pilots to be paid, ground staff to, re to be paid. Uh, they require, obviously, a minimum amount of uh, maintenance as well. And the airline also has to manage fuel. It is a high-cost industry. And right now, it's an extremely low-revenue industry. And that's one of the reasons why Lufthansa says that it needs government assistance. Now, it says it doesn't only need that assistance to get through this crisis, but also to remain competitive after this crisis ends as well. Of course, they're saying that because some other airlines around Europe, but also around the world, have already secured government assistance. You look at, for instance, at Air France and KLM. Uh, you look, for instance, at a lot of the American airlines that are getting assistance from the Trump administration. Lufthansa says in order to survive in the future, that is what they are going to need. And they say that the future probably going to look a lot different than the past has looked. They said that this airline they believe will get back on track, will be strong in the future, but could be, at least in the midterm, a lot smaller than it has been in the past. Julia? Mm, the challenges. Fred Plankin at Frankfurt Airport there for us. Thank you. Now, when in Mal, many planes remain grounded. Another type of aircraft could soon be taken to the skies pandemic drones. As more people get tired of lockdown restrictions, it might be increasingly difficult to police social distancing, as we saw over the weekend in some places here in the United States. One company's answer is a COVID tracking drone. They can detect fever, coughing, breathing rate, heart rate and blood pressure, all from a distance of 60 metres. Cameron Chell is the CEO of Dragonfly, the company behind the drones. Cameron, great to have you on the show. Wow, is all I can say. These drones are pretty impressive. Talk us through this. Sure. Well, Dragonfly is the oldest operating commercial drone manufacturer in the world. We're a public company. We trade uh, here in the United States under the symbol DFLYF. 
And we have a history in public safety. In fact, in 2013, a Dragonfly drone was the first drone to save a human life. And today that drone sits in the Smithsonian Center. We are really, really focused on being able to provide the correct data so our public officials are in a spot to be able to determine if things like social distancing, mask wearing and such are actually worrying or actually working. The big challenge that they have right now is that we are working with data that is all after the fact. We don't really know where and how we can open the economies. And this type of technology, both on cameras and on drones, can help us have that data. What would happen, though, if it detected people with high temperatures or people weren't being socially dif- distant? Does the drone itself have the capability to make a noise, for example, and tell people to separate? Or does it just feed the data back to whoever's watching that then can go to that place and say, spread out or isolate people? Yes, I think it's really important to understand that this technology and the software underneath it, it recognizes patterns, not people. This is not designed or built for profiling. Originally, this technology was designed to hang from the bottom of helicopters and fly over disaster relief zones to be able to pick up the vital signs of of survivors and then determine where's the most important place to place those resources. So it really isn't practical, even if it could profile somebody, to then say, oh, let's, uh, let's put out a police cruiser and go get this person for secondary screening. The idea here is to be able to provide population health measurement, a way to help ensure that the decisions we make are protecting our frontline workers, our public in general, and to reopen the economy. Is that going to be the biggest battle you face here, Cameron? Because I know you were testing it in Connecticut and I looked at some of the comments from the American Civil Liberties Union of Connecticut. They said, look, it's an example of privacy invading companies using COVID-19 as a chance to market their products. As much as you say, look, this is about trying to collect data, understanding what's happening real time. There are those that say this is just a tool to spy. I think there's a couple of things to consider. First of all, I think that they made some of those comments without having all the information. Right. That said, it's incredibly important to respect the wishes of the public. And I think the Westport police did an excellent job on quickly moving away from the program because of their public concerns. Their first and foremost concern was to protect their public and their decision not to proceed was also part of that. However, if we look at the reality in private in the private world, for example, where people are looking to reopen theme parks or reopen convention centers or uh, workplace safety, those types of organizations want to build consumer confidence so that people will come back to their facilities. And I don't know about you, but if I'm going to make a decision to go to a theme park this coming weekend with my family, I want to know that the health measurement is in place there. I want to know what are the infectious rates happening or I'm not going to go back to that place. So the reality is this technology is coming. Yeah. You know, I'm on board with this. You know, I have um, stringent beliefs about the need for privacy, but where safety is concerned, then I think the lines get blurred. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this, to be honest. Talk to me about the conversations that you're having with regulators, because in the end, it will be a governmental decision, I think, to apply this kind of technology and to justify that it's for safety, not for anything else, snooping, for example. Talk to me about those conversations. Yeah, sure. The, the, the great part about this is, is the privacy framework for this is already in place. Right. There's really two types of areas to think about here. There's public 
public safety and then there's private public safety. So in the case of public public safety, where you might be over public areas, the only thing that's being collected is anonymized data about health population. So over this geographic location, which might be a beach, for example, between the hours of two in the afternoon and three in the afternoon, there were 450 people and 0.021% uh, demonstrated um, uh, signs of potential infectious or respiratory disease and 23% of them were practicing social distancing at this rate and these hours and that's all the data that allows public officials to then start making either policy decisions or putting different public awareness campaigns out to help protect all of us. Now in the case of consumer or workplace safety in the private area that all can require and does require consent. So if I'm going to walk into a basketball game or a theme park or my place of work where the employer or the private enterprise has concern to protect its workers or to ensure that people coming in there aren't going to spread infection, then I may have an initial screening, which we've already seen. We've seen yes. dozens of companies now thermal cameras. Disney has said they're going to check temperatures coming in. What this allows is for this to happen in an unobtrusive way and then say, hey, that person, if they want to come in, if they're displaying these uh, conditions, can go for secondary uh, screening. But again, get. that's all 1% consent. And again, so there's a framework for this to happen. This is yeah. just an appropriate solution of technology and safety for all of us. In the absence of testing, welcome to the future, quite frankly, and it's needed. Cameron Chow, stay in touch with us, please, sir, and stay safe. It's uh, going Thank to be fascinating so to watch progress. The CEO there of Dragonfly. Thank you for that. All right, up next, mission accomplished. One of the Army's New York City field hospitals discharges its last patient. We examine a glimmer of hope in the battle against coronavirus. Another one. Stay with us. Mission accomplished. Before we go, some good news here from New York. The U.S. Army completing their mission at a New York City field hospital this week. This is a standing ovation from healthcare workers to the last patient discharge. More than 1,000 patients were treated there. That's it for the show. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.